I have the opportunity again this morning to lead us in our worship gathering into the next expression of our worship, which is to attend to the Word of God, to adore the author of Scripture by giving our attention, humbling ourselves to its direction. Let me pray, and then I'm going to invite you to Romans or to Exodus 12. We could go to, it would preach well, Romans 12, but so does this one, so we'll stay in Exodus. Let's pray together. Lord, we're thankful for this morning and for the worship you've already induced in our heart and in our spirit. We're thankful to be alive, to be quickened. We're thankful for the ministry of music that aids in our expression of adoration as we anticipate Again, at this moment in this season, the nativity, the incarnation of everlasting and divine Christ, the Messiah. Lord, we are thankful for the chance that we have to have this truth revealed to us in Scripture and to be here in this text today and have the shadow of it teach us more about the wonder of the sacrificial Lamb of God. Lord, we pray for our assembly. We pray that the word of truth would be foremost, that worship of you would accord to it, that we would humble ourselves to its direction, and that we would not only be hearers, but doers. And as we're given this instruction, that we wouldn't grow in academic information, but that we would be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And that by the Scripture's shaping of us, we would prove and live and obey what is that perfect will of our God for your people. So we commend the time. Lord, we pray not selfishly for ourselves, but we pray for the gospel work in our community that's being done faithfully and we're so thankful for churches all over our city that we know well and fellowship with. And I pray specifically for Josh Holland at Downtown Mission Church that you would direct him this morning as he walks his way through the gospel of John and proclaims the Lamb. I pray that that preaching would honor you and shape our brothers and sisters who attend there. Father, we pray for <clears throat> those in our congregation that are maybe hurting, those that are struggling with a identified indifference that they're not content with, but it lingers. And so I pray that there would be comfort in this assembly to those that are grieving and hurting and aching but at the same time, that there would be a stirring and a restlessness for the person who feels cold or apathetic. So we pray this way because what we've prayed for only you can do. And in faith, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so, in Exodus 12, I'll start this morning in verse 43, and we'll work our way into the 13th chapter. 
Exodus chapter 12 and verse 43. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. But every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you've circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house. You shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he will come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land. But no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. On that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and a beast is mine. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today, in the month of Abib, you are going out. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the seventh day, there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you. No leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your sons on that day. It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute as it's appointed at its appointed time from year to year. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all the first, all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every Firstborn of the donkey, you shall redeem with a lamb. Or, if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons, you shall redeem. This is the word of the Lord. Would he add his blessing to its reading? You can be seated. <clears throat> this morning we are in Exodus 12, but I want to invite you to think about Matthew 16, 19. In Matthew 16, 19, Jesus is promising to his followers that he is going to establish 
the church. And that even hell's host won't be able to overcome the church. That he's establishing the church and he is giving it something really significant that he calls keys of the kingdom. Christ says he will establish his church and he will give it keys of the kingdom. And says whatever is bound in heaven will be bound in church and vice versa. I am convinced that the keys of the kingdom are nowhere more clearly displayed than when Christ's church expresses the ordinances of baptism and communion. It is not more clear anywhere than in those two ordinances. And I would add that it is displayed clearly at baptism because baptism says what the gospel is. The good news is that sinners can be united to Christ and his identity as righteous can become ours. That's what the gospel is. Communion, the Lord's Supper, tells us whose the gospel is. God's people sit at the table and fellowship with him in unity. Drawn near by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus says, I will give you keys of the kingdom. And it is a great joy that we get to display the clarity of the gospel in those two ordinances. In that confession, let's spend time this morning learning more about those keys, especially the Lord's Supper, from what we learn about the institution of the Passover in Exodus 12 and 13. So there are three things that I want us to see about the Lord's Supper from Exodus 12 and 13. Three things. This is one of those Sundays when I, I do wish that we finished every sermon with the Lord's Supper. I am going to be uh, provoked with enthusiasm for the Lord's Supper as we go through this, and I think you probably will be as well. But we don't do that, and it's okay. We'll look forward to the next Lord's Supper. The title I've given for this sermon is Saved Unto Sanctification. As we walk through this text, um, there are nuances and what seem like repetitions. Here's, here's where we've been recently. If you, you take your Bible, go to, go to Exodus chapter 11. In Exodus chapter 11, the plague, the death of the firstborn is foretold. God says, this is coming. Look into Exodus 12, the first part. God reveals the initial instruction for Passover to Moses and Aaron. Right away in 12. In the middle of 12, Moses relays that instruction to the people. At the end of 12, the 10th plague is executed. It happens. You read it at the end of chapter 12, along with the promised exodus realized. It happened. Today, we're in Exodus 12, 43 through 13. And we see here the Lord instituting the Passover for his people. 
And it seems like so much detail of operation. I'm going to deliver you from slavery, and here's all the things I've ordained for you to do. Now, it is important for us to see that God is a mighty Savior who delivers captives from bondage. But it is really important for us to note in these chapters that we are saved from captivity for a reason. For a reason. The exodus salvation from Egypt is not to get as many poor slaves out of captivity as possible, but to bear in themselves a mark of identity. They were going to be marked in function for a good reason. God's salvation has specific purpose. It is life-giving in its effect. It is not salvation for salvation's sake. You ever look through the cardboard roll in the middle of a paper towel roll and hold it up to your eye? Maybe you do that all the time. Every, every time you change paper towel, maybe you be there and your wife catches you. I wasn't doing anything. What you see through that roll is what's called myopic. It's, it's too focused. You don't get the whole picture. There is an appropriate understanding of salvation, that it is a gracious and loving deliverance of captives. But that's a bit myopic. God has this wonderful redemption plan that includes our particular or distinct function. We call it sanctification, to be set apart. Saved unto sanctification. Sanctification becomes evident as we read all this instruction about what are free people to do now. Not just be scattered everywhere aimlessly. Okay, you're out of Egypt. Enjoy it. But they're given all these instructions that come from the life-giving effect of being redeemed, being saved, being delivered. So, as we see God giving his people really painstaking instructions, just meticulous details, chapter after chapter. In fact, last week I told my wife, that felt like too much work, just going through a huge section of scripture and feeling like you said something about all of it, but not much about any of it. But it's this detail that's rehearsed and clarified and the question is why why so much detail because there is a good reason why captives are set free it is for a purpose of function and one of the functions is regarding a sort of key of the kingdom the passover we learn about our lord's supper from what we read here. And so I want us to see three things about the Lord's Supper from the institution of the Passover. The first is going to be this. The Lord's Supper is exclusive. 
there are meant to be people uninvited, unwelcome to the table. You know, on first Sunday of the month, when we're going to take communion, and I asked the elders to go around the perimeter of the room, that's twofold, and I, I probably mentioned it to you. It is both to guard and to serve. There may be an occasion where an elder has to encourage someone not to participate in the Lord's Supper. There may be an occasion where an elder sees someone who had been overlooked or forgotten and serves them. And the text reminds us that's because the Passover and the Lord's Supper are meant to be exclusive. The second thing the Passover is going to teach us about the Lord's Supper is that it is a family event that is unified. And then the third thing is that the Passover is going to teach us about communion, that communion is about special grace. The Lord's Supper is about special grace. It is, in a sense, a common grace. It is gracious of God to allow our children, who are not yet in Christ, to witness us proclaim his death until he comes again. That's good of God. It's common. It's gracious. But the Lord's Supper is about special grace. So these three things. Let's get started with the first one. It's exclusivity. Boy, that is an unwelcome idea, right? Exclusivity. Favoritism. Bias. Bigots. All right. Let's be scriptural here. Look at verse 43. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. We learn from the Passover that the Lord's Supper is an exclusive meal. No foreigner shall eat of it. This is the first injunction. We have heard, do this, do this, do this, do this. Oh, don't do that. Don't give it to outsiders. This is not racial or ethnic discrimination. We know that a mixed multitude of people has left Egypt. They're not all descendants of Abraham. Yet they're all instructed to participate in the Passover. So this is not discrimination. How are they supposed to identify who belongs to the congregation? By the way, in church life, that's a heavy question. Paul actually says at one point, you should guard each other this way. And I'm not referring to those outside the church, but those inside the church. And church stewards scratch their head and go, well, who's inside and who's outside? And each church applies that with some measure of discernment. How do we know who's inside and who's outside? How do they know who is called the congregation? Well, first, there's this injunction. He says, no foreigner or hired hand is allowed to participate in the Passover. Now, foreigners. 
we probably unknowingly insert a lot of Western idea into the word foreigner. Ah, I, I see what you mean. People who are not Americans. The original use of the term here for foreigner simply means an outsider. Someone who's not in that group. It doesn't necessarily mean where you were born or who your parents were. It means you're operating outside of the common, everyday life of the group. It's not racial or ethnic discrimination. In fact, to say the Lord's Supper is for exclusive participation is proper religious discrimination. What is proper discrimination? It is that those who refuse to join by faith and practice have no more right to claim access to the Lord's Supper than a person who refuses to get a driver's license has right to drive on public roads. It is right discrimination. And it has to happen all the time in orderly communities. And it happens at the Lord's Supper. Improper discrimination would be the kind that hates and hurts simply because someone is of another race or religion. It is not so much directed at guarding something as it is directed at hurting something. So the foreigner, the outsider, is not welcome. We're going to talk a little bit more about what constitutes outside. Second, who is invited? The slave, that is circumcised. The term for slave, I'm going to talk a lot more about it in Exodus 21. A lot of you should have some pressing questions. What does the Bible say about the law of the people regarding the institution of slavery? And chapter 21 is going to answer that in great detail. The slave who is circumcised, this is an indentured servant. This is a person who is contractually employed in Bible practice. This would be a six or seven year commitment. That person who has come inside the community and is symbolized as inside the community through circumcision is invited to the Passover. Then he says, there are sojourners who are welcomed, certain sojourners. He should not be excluded from participation in the celebration of the Passover as long as he is circumcised. Meaning, as long as he's a member of the covenant community. As long as circumcision, the sign of faith, was true and indicating presence in the covenant community. It didn't matter whether that person was a descendant of Abraham. The mixed multitude comes out, and God doesn't say, okay, now those of you who can trace your lineage back to Abraham, I want you to observe the Passover. He doesn't say that. He says, all of you who are united in obedient faith, observing the visible sign of circumcision, should come and celebrate Passover. I, I think that we often have really ethnic definitions for inside and outside when it comes to the book of Exodus. I think. 
it, 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 is, it has surprised me in the last few weeks how rare that is in the very beginning of the nation. So here's my question for us. And this might be the heaviest portion of our time in the Word today. Um, and my hope, um, I was walking around this room yesterday evening and thinking, how do I, how do I communicate my hope, my prayer for our time right now. And it's, I hope to not frustrate anyone, but I do hope to provoke thoughtfulness in everyone. Okay? So my question right now is this. If we're learning some lessons from the Passover, and the first one we see is that the Passover was exclusive. There were only those people who by faith had embraced the sign of the covenant community, which for them was circumcision. My question for us right now is, are there signs that must mark anyone who's welcome to come to the Lord's Supper? Let me build parameter because Passover and Lord's Supper are not identical. Jesus, in first, in, well, in, in the upper room, and then it's echoed in 1 Corinthians, says this is the institution of new covenant. So there is a similarity yet dissimilarity, okay? All right. <clears throat> we participate in a new covenant in Christ. It's a unique, intimate union. John 6. Anyone who's going to participate in the covenant must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, he says twice in John 6. Now, take your Bibles, please, to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. There is some wonderful stuff happening in Exodus 12 and 13. However, it's a shadow. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7. <clears throat> For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second, right? If the first covenant didn't have any weaknesses, which the Bible tells us is our flesh. Our flesh represents the weakness of the first covenant. If it didn't have any weaknesses, then why anticipate a second? Why would the prophet Ezekiel announce a second? Which is what the author of Hebrews is going to say right here. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming. This is Ezekiel 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. They didn't continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law into their minds, write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. This sounds a lot like what Paul teaches about the circumcision of the heart not made with hands. 
verse 11. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they'll all know the Lord, from the least of them to the greatest. I will be merciful toward their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So, the Lord's Supper is not exclusive to those males who are circumcised. That much we know. But has God designed a new sign to mark those who come to the Lord's Supper? I wonder, I wonder if you're familiar with what's called the halfway covenant. I'm just going to take a minute. You know, they say if you don't know history, you're destined to repeat it. There was this really grievous error in the 17th century called the halfway covenant. So here's what they did. Every child who was born to parents who were redeemed church members was baptized and considered a church member but not allowed to participate in the Lord's Supper. That's halfway covenant. Like, you're baptized, you're kind of in. First key of the kingdom, second one's not for you, halfway. The problem became, there was this assumed salvation. Well, your parents are believers. They're going to eventually convey the gospel to you, and you'll believe it. That was assumed, but it often didn't happen. There are these children growing up, having been baptized, never allowed to take communion. They become adults, and they say to the church, I was baptized. I'm a member. Oh, yeah, you are a member. And then they became members, and then they took communion, but they never made any personal mark of being God's people. There was never anything that indicated that faith was theirs, that it had only been their parents. So the halfway covenant, halfway covenant is rejected by men like Jonathan Edwards and the leaders of the Great Awakening. And thankfully, there was clarification brought back to that. But I use that illustration to say, is there disorder in the way we think about the exclusivity of the Lord's Supper? It's meant to be guarded. Here's my question. At IBC, we have a fairly broad or open invitation to communion. And maybe that's appropriate. There is a certain grace in participation. However, I, I want to instruct you not to just assume that the generous breadth of church invitation means that you don't have to consider any individual marks when you come to the Lord's Supper. I wonder this. I wonder if, as a family, you say, if we haven't expressed the first key of the kingdom in baptism, we're not going to be welcome to the second key of the kingdom in communion. If we haven't already said what the gospel is, then we're not going to move ahead and say whose 
the gospel is. I wonder if you would pray about that. Maybe, maybe for your particular family, you might pray and say, well, not just that. I was baptized when I was young at another place. But now I'm in, in this assembly, but I'm not an affirmed covenant member at this assembly. And so I, I think I should wait and be a member before I come to the table. Now, as one elder, I think speaking for all of us, we are we're not imposing any of those signs on you. However, I think we're trying to learn from what the Lord is speaking in great detail. And we should ask ourselves before him, are there some signs that I'm neglecting that might exclude me from the Lord's Supper? Um, when a person comes to the Lord's Supper unbaptized and not a part of covenant membership of a body of believers, they come on their own identification, entirely independent from affirmation. That's a really dangerous place to live. That's a really dangerous place to live, friends. If there has never been a group of other Christians who have said, yes, you should profess publicly what seems true from what you're telling us. There's never been a group that affirmed that in baptism. There's never been a group that affirmed your place in the covenant community by welcoming you into a local church in membership. If those two things are not true, you are operating as an entirely rogue, independent Christian saying, I know I'm saved. But no one else has ever said that. Not only is it dangerous, it's entirely outside of any practice in Scripture. In Acts chapter 9, it's the first place people are called Christian. They didn't call themselves Christian. By their life and practice, they were insulted as being followers of Christ and called Christian. But very independent Americans say, I don't need anybody else to tell me what I am. I know what I am. And maybe you're right. But I don't think it's wise. I wonder if you would pray, mom and dad, young adult Christian, and say, Lord, what am I learning from the Passover about the exclusivity of the Lord's Supper, and how does it keep me out, or how does it draw me in? In that first lesson. The next lesson we learn from the Passover is that the Passover is radically inclusive. Isn't that great? It's exclusive, except where it's extremely inclusive. Everybody, every house, at the same time, come and participate. Look at verse 47. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. Exclusively inclusive. Every person that met the qualification should come and take communion. Look at verse 48. This is just wonderful. 
if a stranger shall, shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land. They're not even there yet. And they're talking about people who obey by faith like they were born there. They didn't got there. They're like three steps outside of captivity. And he says, listen, you walk by faith and obey the Lord, you're going to be regarded like a person born in the land of promise. That's wonderful. If you're walking by faith and obeying the will of the Lord, you operate at the Lord's Supper like a person born in heaven. That's precious. That is precious. The Passover is meant to be eaten in a single house, even where there's multiple families. Get in one house. Express your unity. Eat it indoors. Don't be reckless with it. Don't let people accidentally participate. You're eating it out like a picnic lunch and people are coming along and grabbing the Passover. Eat it inside. Don't go outside. Remember the night? Don't leave your house. Death is coming to all the land. Stay inside. Eat the Passover inside. Verse 50 and 51, look at this. It's what's called a fulfillment notice. It means what God said, they did. The Passover was celebrated. Israel was united as a community of faith within God's protection and guidance. They did just what the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. They were united in faith-filled, spirit-powered obedience. The symbol was their Passover. United together. Sometimes we read in 1 Corinthians... And there's a warning, a stern warning in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, Paul is expressing such concern for the church. He says, in the first place, when you get together as a church, I hear that there are divisions. The one thing that the Passover made painfully obvious was unity. And now you come to the Lord's Supper with division. I believe it, he says. There must be factions among you in order that those among you who are genuine are seeing it. So when you come together, it's not for the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one of you goes ahead, has his own meal, takes what you want without considering each other. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Exclamation point. What? Do you not have houses to eat or drink in? Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say about this? What should have been learned from the Passover was that they came in one place, they ate of one substance, by one faith, they participated in an unbroken sacrifice. Let me just comment on that. Earlier we read, um, verse 46. At the end of verse 46, eat this in one house. Don't take the flesh outside. 
and you shall not break any of its bones. Don't divide up the sacrifice. Is Christ divided? Don't divide up the sacrifice. Don't, don't pull a back leg off and send it to the neighbor. You participate in the one lamb together. And Christ becomes the vivid fulfillment of that. Not a bone of his body is broken. The Bible tells us in John 19, 34 that it might be fulfilled what was said. The covenant community is called to partake of one lamb on the same day in one house with only those who are united in faith as a picture of a body undivided, the body of Christ. Now, I know that the Lord's Supper is exclusive. And there are some people who are not invited to participate. But I also want to emphasize that it is inclusive. Look at what I mean um, in verse 49, 12:49. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. There is one requirement. Um, let me just say it this way. The Lord's Supper is not meant to be your prize for getting it right. The Lord's Supper is meant to be your supply because you can't get it right. The Lord's Supper is for sinners. It's supposed to remind you that you're unworthy. It's not supposed to be box checked for something you've earned. There's one law for native and sojourners. There's no special advantage to saying, I've been in church for decades. I'm a third generation Christian. Anyone who comes to God by his word, they become natives of the kingdom. Not, not transplants, not visitors, Natives of the kingdom. <laughs> when you look around in church, I want to communicate that maybe you're not a person who's always at church. Maybe you're fairly new and you think, I'm kind of an outsider to church. I'm not like some of these folks. My, my parents weren't churchgoers. I wasn't born here. When you look around this room, what you see most truly is strangers, aliens, weary travelers, and orphans. Only by God's grace are we brought into family and become natives of the land of promise 
the everlasting kingdom. This is a united family only in Christ. There's one law for both the native and the sojourner. It's exclusive. It's inclusive. Lastly, learn from the Passover that the Lord's Supper is about special grace. Now, if you're noticing where we are in our text, we're not even a third of the way through the verses. But that's okay. What comes next is a long description of one single truth. Look at verse 13. Of 13. 13, 13. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. So, unclean, donkey, lamb, clean. Or, if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. What we see here is what is often referred to as the law of the firstborn. Five times in the Pentateuch, the law of the firstborn is explained. Twice in Exodus, then Leviticus, uh, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The law of the firstborn. In Numbers 18, listen as I read. Everything that opens the womb of all flesh, whether man or beast, which they offer to the Lord shall be yours. Nevertheless, the firstborn of man you shall redeem. And the firstborn of unclean animals you shall redeem. And their redemption price at a month old is fixed at five shekels of silver. Every unclean thing that isn't fit to be offered as a sacrifice to God including donkeys and us, is meant to be redeemed with five shekels of silver. Now, it was appropriate and it was the common practice that if the firstborn donkey was born, the neck would be broken. It wasn't worth five shekels. We'll just wait for the second donkey. But for people, the five shekels were to be paid. In the law of the firstborn, there is a vivid instruction about buying back, about ransom being paid. Exodus 13, 16. This practice shall be a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought you out of Egypt. Every time they went and paid the price for one of their kids, they had the vivid reminder that they were not their own. They had been saved by someone else. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. They had been bought with a price. The price of a sacrifice lamb, a substitute, a bloodshed offering. Blood smeared across the doorframe. They had been purchased with the life of something else. And they were supposed to remember that from generation to generation. God would communicate that he owned their firstborn. So, as a firstborn, I can say this. In biblical culture, there was a significance for the firstborn. They were the namesake. They were going to represent that the family would continue. So they had this certain esteem. 
And when God says that the firstborn would be his, he wasn't saying, ah, second and third, whatever. He was saying, if I get the first, you understand what that means. Oh, yeah. If you get the first, you have all of them. Okay, so it's not, well, I'm a second born, so I guess God didn't have me, you know, calculated into the equation. The first and the second and the third and the fourth and the fifth, they were all his if the first was. So parents, think about our kids. So oddly sometimes. And maybe we read this text and it's, it's startling. Wait, so God's kidnapping our kids? The law of the firstborn reminds us that while all of us need redemption, in Christ's blood sacrifice, our kids can have God. In blood sacrifice, our kids can have God. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So we celebrate the Advent right now. And it causes all kinds of joy to celebrate. Look at what's happening. And maybe when you celebrate, you'll read Luke 2. And as you read Luke 2, you'll get to verse 22. And you'll read this. And they took Jesus to the temple to offer the sacrifice and pay the five shekels of the firstborn. Jesus is taken to the temple and his parents pay the five shekels to redeem the firstborn of all creation. That is spectacular. The one who would redeem operates in the worship, operates in the reminder. The Lord's Supper is so important to God's people. It is what Jesus calls a key of the kingdom. And if you know anything about keys, you know that you don't operate things without keys. The key of the kingdom at the Lord's Supper should teach us that participation in fellowship is exclusive, but it's also inclusive. And it should teach us that the Lord's Supper is about special saving grace. Now, here's one brief complication. Just one minute. There are some religions that communicate that the Lord's Supper provides special saving grace. The Lord's Supper is a vivid reminder of special saving grace, but it does not itself give us special saving grace. So we sometimes default to referring to it as common grace, which is true. Because there may be some people who would be confused or frustrated if we said this is a memorial of special saving grace. Come and participate. And it's true. It is a reminder of special saving grace. Now let me finish with the last few verses, which we didn't read, you may have noticed. Exodus 13, 14.
And when in time to come your sons ask you, what does this mean? Why do we break the neck of the donkey? Why do our neighbors pay five shekels of silver when their first child's born? What does this mean? That's the point. The question. You will say back to them this, and I quote, By a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. When Pharaoh, was, when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animal. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb. But all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes. For by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. They were going to operate in the Passover in a way that set them apart. No one else was doing the Passover meal. But it would set them apart to tell, tell the story of how, by a strong hand, God had saved them from slavery in Egypt. And how the blood of a sacrificed lamb had served as a covering for them. We come to the Lord's Supper as people who are set apart to tell how when we were in spiritual captivity and bondage, the Lord, by strong hand, delivered us by the blood of the Lamb of God. And we operate like this because God has delivered us for a reason. That reason is sanctification. We come to communion, we come to the Lord's Supper, and we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. We are those who are uniquely set apart as people to proclaim. Romans 1, 1. Jesus Christ is declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness, through whom we have received grace to bring about the obedience among all the Gentiles for the sake of his name. We are not set free from Egypt to wander aimlessly. We are given clear instruction about being particular people to God. To be a vivid expression of God's purposes, of his holiness. So, as disciples of Jesus Christ, as followers of Christ, think carefully. Pray earnestly about coming to the Lord's Supper. Remember, it is about special grace. It is the proclamation of who the gospel belongs to. purpose of doing it carefully is to mark us as people who are telling the message of who God is, what God is like, and what he's told us to do. We are set free from captivity. 
for a reason. Let's walk in obedience to that instruction. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for all the things you've given us to help us learn. You've given us this institution of the Passover. It teaches us about the Lord's Supper that we participate in. We learn about it. We should, we should think carefully about it. We should steward it faithfully and with reverence. So I pray that our church would be shaped, that we would have more discernment because of what your word has led us to, that, that in the months and years and decades ahead that we would be faithful stewards of the Lord's Supper. That we wouldn't just come to this text and think about the neat connections between Passover and Lord's Supper, but that we, God, your people, your children, would be led by Scripture to do what is required in stewardship. To understand our identity as redeemed, as liberated, ransomed, captives to now live as a people before you in faith and obedience. So, so Father, please cause us to be transformed by your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and we'll get to sing together.